Welcome to Once Every Two Weeks, where every other week we sift through the highlights of my Celine Dion dream journal. As I told you when you put all of this on the website, I don't want to know what you dream about when it comes to Celine Dion. Dude, very little of it is sexual. When it is, it's highly entertaining. Mostly it's just like me, Celine, and the Pope just beating you up with hockey sticks. Why do all of your dreams involve you and the Pope beating me with hockey sticks? I don't want to talk about it. Once every two weeks is a look back at music from the 90s through a modern lens and nostalgic twinge. Hosted by two guys who have been friends since high school. Join us, Mark and Tom, as we examine old hits, forgotten favorites, and overlooked gems as we dive into the music that got us through all the fun of those awesomely awkward, angst-filled teenage years, one album at a time. Hello, Thomas. How's it going? You know, I'm a little happier going into tonight than I was our last recording two weeks ago. And there was much rejoicing. Yay. You know, speaking of Monty Python, my wife keeps telling me my daughter is too young for the Holy Grail. And I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to keep this fight up before it just happens. Aside from Castle Anthrax, I don't know what else she needs to age up for. I don't either. And she doesn't understand why Castle Anthrax would be inappropriate for her, so what's the problem there? I think it's time she learns the true danger of rabbits. <laughs> we come from an entire generation that, up until our 20s, didn't realize that Dan Aykroyd got a blowjob from a ghost in Ghostbusters. <laughs> right? <laughs> it was always in the movie, but it's something that I think, watching it as adults, we were all like, What the hell? What is happening, y'all? <laughs> I vividly remember, I think it's when I showed Christine Ghostbusters because she had never watched it in its entirety. Right. So I think when I showed her Ghostbusters is when I realized it and I'm like, holy cow. Yeah. I mean, when you're too young to know what it is, you're not going to remember it. So you might as well show Ellie train spotting now. I did not realize Jimmy Lee Miller was the guy from Elementary with Lucy Liu. Oh, yes. I didn't know he had done that. So now I, I just learned that the other day since you're bringing up train spotting, and now I want to watch Elementary and see if I like it. Hmm. Do you like any of those Sherlock shows? I have mixed feelings about the, the Benedict Martin Freeman one mm -hmm. because I think both actors were great in the role, but I have beef with Stephen Moffat. He tries to prove how smart and clever he can be, and it doesn't always translate to actual good storytelling. It just comes off as kind of patronizing to the audience of somebody's trying to be smart and clever and tell a story that shows how smart and clever they are. Gotcha. And then also I felt with Sherlock, they ran into an issue where they had spent so much time with the characters and so much time working on their stories. Things made sense in their head and they didn't always translate that into the story to give the story the full context to tell the audience what was happening in their heads. Interesting. My favorite Sherlock retelling on a TV series recently was, well, it's not really recent. It was in the aughts, I think. Lie to Me with Tim Roth. I love Tim Roth. I didn't realize that was supposed to be a Sherlock interpretation. Yeah, he's supposed to be like a Sherlock type character. Cool. I've kind of attributed it more to being like a stiff British psych, but Tim Roth is amazing. One of my favorites. You know what else is one of my favorites? Your mom. Counting Crows. 
And for those of you listening at home, if you're counting crows right now, there is only one on this podcast. <sighs> Tonight, we are covering Across a Wire, live in New York City, by Counting Crows. I hate you, Milkman Dan. <laughs> Before we jump into anything about the band or the episode, let's talk through why we're doing Across a Wire. So, Because it's amazing? It is, it is. August and Everything After was too early for us to be a high school retrospective podcast. Well, the first two albums, which were just a little too early for what we want to be covering at the moment. Exactly. So it's our way to cheat the system. I still very much look forward to doing this desert life. But but the benefit that we got from Across a Wire is that while we were in high school, we shared a lot with this album. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark, why don't you tell us about how you got introduced to the Counting Crows? Um, I think we were all just hanging around <laughs> outside the stage door and they just came out and I said hello. Okay, not the time we actually met them. Oh, okay. Older Brothers. Counting Crows was one that John was very much into. He was actually lucky enough to see them on the August and Everything tour. Nice. So he got to see them small venue, intimate setting. And when Recovering the Satellites came out, he was like, okay, the album's all right. But there were a handful of songs that he says that the album version doesn't do justice the way that he experienced it. Hmm. He's kind of always been salty about but as I was hitting my formative years where Puberty? music started to matter, it was one that between him and then James got into. And so it was just always in heavy rotation. How about yourself? I first learned about the Counting Crows at my aunt's house, 95 or 96. She had August and everything after. And I heard it there and I was like, hey, I really dig this guy. And I was a fan. And then I think you started playing it a lot. Mm -hmm. And that deepened my love for them. And I really remember them having an impact on me as I was growing up and continue to to this day. They're in my top five favorite bands of all times. Yeah, Recovering the Satellites was an important junior high album for me. I picked that one up on CD when it came out and I listened to that a lot. So by the time that we met, yeah, I would have already been going down that road. The first one I bought when it dropped was This Desert Life. I bought it right when it came out. So that's how I got into them. Let's jump in and talk about who the band is, how they formed, and lower down, I have us talking about our first concert experience with them. Cool? Yeah. Counting Crows was formed by Adam Duritz and David Bryson in 1991. At the time, Adam had another band he was also in called the Himalayans, and Dave happened to be the producer that recorded the Himalayans. They laid down a bunch of tracks and kind of put an album together that never officially got released while they were still a band. Adam and Dave formed the Counting Crows in 91. By the time we get to Across the Wire, Mark, you want to tell us who was in the band for these two shows? Yeah, the band had grown a lot since it initially formed as that duo that played coffee shops all around the Bay Area. Once they got to this point in their careers, and for this tour, the band was, in addition to Adam Duritz and David Bryson, the Counting Crows were Matt Malley, Ben Mize, Dan Vickery, and Charles Gillingham. And they all mostly kind of play more than one instrument. And at least on the first album, it changes frequently. We'll get a bit more into that soonish. But those were the members on this record. Yep. 
when the Counting Crows formed, they got their first demo recorded. They sent it out and they were immediately loved by the industry. A bidding war actually broke out among nine record labels who all wanted to sign the Counting Crows. But it was Gary Gersh, the Geffen A&R rep, who is now the president of Capitol Records, who had been known for signing Nirvana. He heard the album and was quoted as saying, I was blown away. I listened to a lot of tapes, and it's extremely rare for me to be so taken by something. So it was signed and released on Geffen, and August and Everything After dropped on my 12th birthday in September 14th, 1993, and it went platinum in just five months, which was faster than the other big albums at the time that were from new bands like Pearl Jam's 10 and Nirvana's Nevermind. Hmm. As a... Band, they chose their name from a, a British divination nursery rhyme about the superstitious counting of magpies, which are members of the Crow family. The nursery rhyme was called One for Sorrow, and Adam Duritz heard the rhyme during the film Signs of Life, which starred his good friend Mary Louise Parker. I like her. I'm a huge fan of Mary Louise Parker. She good. She's really good. Did you see The House of Yes? No. I highly recommend that one as soon as you possibly can. It's very obvious it's adapted from a play, but it is so good and twisted and dark. I'm going to quote here from an article on Leo Sign. Of course, music critics, being the whiny musical untalented bastards they themselves often are, with several lambasting durrets for his, quote, yowling vocals. That makes me sad. Not that they got bad reviews, but that the article says music critics and not music journalists because it would make me happy if you could do the finger quotes too (laughs) after this album came out duritz ended up launching e pluribus unum his own label which signed bands like joe 90 who was the opener for the counting crows the night that we saw them together mark on january 23rd 2000 at the aerial theater in houston wow i know we spent some time with Joe 90 after the show, waiting to meet the Crows, remember? I'm glad that you had the opener in those notes because I don't remember them at all, much less me. (laughs) We were in the back. We were hanging out and talking to them for quite a while because all the fans had flocked around the Counting Crows and we hung out with Joe 90 until the crowds had dissipated. Mm. And then uh, that was the first time I met Adam Duritz. That was probably the first time I met Adam Duritz as well. And he and all of the Counting Crows were so gracious to us. They were very nice, very lovely. Very good to their fans. They really are. I've only seen the Counting Crows once since, and that was all the way back in August of 2007. I saw them at the Tulsa Driller Stadium. Hmm. They were playing with Third Eye Blind and Collective Soul. That's not a bad lineup for a good nostalgia show. It's not. Third Eye Blind was a great, they were great live, but then the Counting Crows came on. And even outside in this stupid, hot, open-air stadium full of people drinking, the show was great. Nice. Did I tell you I just bought tickets to go see the Counting Crows again? No. August 25th, I'm seeing the Counting Crows and Dashboard Confessional. Nice. I've never seen Chris Caraba, so that's been a show I've wanted to see for the past 22 years. So I'm pretty excited to know I'm going to see somebody I really like to watch. We'll get to see the Counting Crows. And then last time we talked about Dashboard, you mentioned that you didn't see him because you were disappointed he was an opener. But I guess if he's got to be an opener, might as well be to the Crows. Right. I'm okay with seeing him open for the Crows. Nice. You've seen them a few times since, right? And before. I have. You've actually seen them more recently than I have. But yeah, I've seen them seven times. Wow. When I saw them with you, that would have been my fourth time seeing them. Because I saw them three times somehow in 1997. 
<laughs> Twice in Houston. The first time was with Fiona Apple. The second time was with the Wallflowers. And then I saw them in between those two shows outside of Fort Worth back before the world was obsessed with giant music festivals. Blockbuster Video put on a one-day rock concert at Texas Motor Speedway. And it was the Blockbuster Video Rock Fest. <laughs> and it, for a while, held the Guinness record for the largest single-day music festival. Oh, yeah? And the lineup was insane. Who all was there? Matchbox 20 was opening. They had just released Long Day. And so they were still kind of on the rise. <laughs> also played The Nixons, The Wallflowers, Holocole, Sugar Ray, Third Eye Blind, Jewel, Collective Soul, Counting Crows, No Doubt, and Bush. Oh, man. And this is, you know, it's 97, so they're all kind of at the height of things. Yeah. This is all, they're young and in their prime, and it was a long day with a lot of really good music. Christine and I were supposed to go see them back in 2014 on Adam's 50th birthday. Oh, nice. And in hindsight, I'm really glad we didn't. He played, well, this, when we're going to see them in August, they're playing a casino show. Mm -hmm. He was at the Hard Rock Casino uh, in 2014. Okay. And a friend of ours went and just said he was really struggling and depressed, I'm assuming because it was his 50th birthday, and said the show was just awful. Him being him, in my mind, if somebody says he was struggling and depressed, that means that he would have been amazing. No, they said like his energy was really low. He was like, he didn't want to be there and was a Counting Crows fan. So when she said it was a bad show, I took her at her word. That's fair. So why didn't you guys go to that one if it was at a casino? Because doesn't Christine have a gambling problem? <laughs> Uh, I don't remember why we couldn't go, but for some reason, I don't think we were in town. Christine was supposed to see them with Fiona Apple on that 97 tour. Oh, cool. But her parents wouldn't let her go by herself, and she didn't have any friends who would go with her. And she has been resentful about not seeing Fiona Apple in 97 ever since and still holds a grudge. Mm. I can't say I blame her either. Do you know what was going on? Because I feel like you should have gone to that Blockbuster festival with me. I don't know. Because, like, Blockbuster was just giving tickets away if you rented a movie from them. And so, like, were you just too lame to agree to go for the day? Or was it like you were maybe in Wisconsin for the summer? I, that's what I was going to say is maybe my family was out of town during that time. And my mom made me go instead of seeing the Counting Crows. Okay. I saw them again later in 2000 because we saw them in January. In September, I was living in the Bay Area and I caught them back-to-back -back nights in Berkeley at the Greek Theater. And that was amazing. The last time I saw them was August 25th of 2001 at the Johnson Auditorium, which is the auditorium on the Sam Houston State University campus in Huntsville, Texas. By that point, like I said, it was my seventh time seeing them and they were just as amazing and just as captivating and I was as into the show as I had ever been. Nice. Because they were always amazing live. And always. there are some bands that I'll see once and I'm like, okay, I've checked them off the list, but Crows, I will see live any chance I get. 100%. We'll get into this more in, later in the episode, but one thing that their live show hinges on is the Round Here performance and what they change and what they bring in and add to that every time because they do it different every time. And at that show, there was a verse that he sang. The band did their thing and he varies away from the song and goes into something else. And he sang something that was 
incredible and moving and I found very much relatable. And I was there with the girl I was going out with at the time and we were both like, what is this? And at the same time, we knew they were working on their next album. And so we were very anxiously awaiting for that. And when Hard Candy dropped, I remember picking it up and listening through it, mostly just to see if that had been part of a new song, because I really wanted it to be part of a new song. And it wasn't. Huh. And I was like, what the heck was that thing that he added in the middle of Round Here? And... Eventually, I had a friend finally convince me to give Ryan Adams a try, and I didn't really care for Gold. The couple of singles off of that didn't do it for me at all, and it wasn't until his next album, Demolition, came out that I was like, okay, maybe I like Ryan Adams. And so I went back, and I was listening to his first album, Heartbreaker, and in the middle of his song, Come Pick Me Up, when he hits the chorus, the light bulb went off, and I was like, this is it. In the middle of round here, he throws in the chorus of Come Pick Me Up. Huh. The whole I wish you would come pick me up, steal my records, screw all my friends. Yeah. It was amazing. Oh, that's awesome, man. And that's one of the reasons it's always worth seeing them. It's You're not going to see the same show twice in a row. Even seeing them two nights in a row in the same theater, they found ways to mix it up. I've got a quote here from Adam on that, where he said, on why their songs sound different most of the time live. Mm -hmm. He said, we're just playing the songs and letting them breathe. It's not that we're determined to play them differently each night. It's more that we're not trying to play them the same. And it shows. They're one of the few bands that I've seen can pull that off so incredibly well. Indeed. It's interesting as we go into this to think about what Adam says. He wrote, Anna's a song about two people struggling to admit how important they are to each other until it's too late. Murder is it about abusive relationship someone I knew was in. Those are both massive oversimplifications, with massive oversimplifications all in caps. Songs are much, all caps, more than the story in the song. It'd be more accurate to say that both songs, and really all my songs, are about me. Which I think is why there's so much emotion and so much variation in the music they play, because... The songs speak differently and sound differently depending on where Adam is in life and what's going on with him, right? Certainly. I will also say, as a quick aside, that I like that you pulled that from an AMA. Mm -hmm. Because the very first kind of Ask Me Anything celebrity encounter that I had ever heard about was County Crows and Adam Duritz online. And this was 96, 97, back in the early AOL dial-up days before that kind of thing had a name or became such the common practice it is now. That doesn't surprise me in the least because the Counting Crows have always been so well connected to their audience. Mm -hmm. The only other thing I want to note, this album, as we said, has songs from August and everything after. We'll be sure to tell you which album each of the songs came from. We're telling you nothing you should know for yourself. <laughs> and Recovering the Satellites, which supposedly I read several places but did not nail down a citation that Adam has told people that Recovering the Satellites is their favorite album that they've done. And half of Saturday nights and Sunday mornings was trying to recover that specific sound. And I think that they more or less achieved it. They nailed it. What I still don't understand about Hard Candy is how did their secret song become their biggest hit from the album? That I don't know. That was Big Yellow Taxi, right? 
Yeah, I'm still baffled by that. It's like, I get why a music person would want to add Vanessa Carlton and do a remix and put it out, but that was the secret song. So I feel like their label either betrayed them or they let their label betray them, and that felt like a betrayal to me. I mean, Hard Candy was the first one that, as an album, I was just like, okay, I like maybe two or three of these songs. So Hard Candy as a whole, I don't care for, but I will defend until my death because the track Good Time is top three all-time best Counting Crow songs. Fight me, I don't care. You will be wrong if you disagree. No, it's a great song. I can't argue with you about that. I really liked on that album Holiday in Spain as well. Mm Mm-hmm. The problem with Hard Candy, though, is by that point, they've made that full transition into being more of like a poppy adult contemporary sound. And so American Girls isn't a bad song, but it's all upbeat and radio friendly. And But the lyrics are what makes Adam Durrett such a great musician. He's like Bob Dylan. No matter what the music sounds like or if you can understand the words at all, <laughs> the lyrics are great. <laughs> There is something that I've noticed. There is a giant generational gap in the music between, like, my friends that are a bit younger than me than my friends that are a bit older than me. Okay. And Counting Crows are one of the main focal points that I can look at. Aside from Death Cab for Cutie, I'm all about we have the facts and we're voting yes. And Charles is all transatlanticism. But when it comes to Counting Crows, I love them, and everybody I know who's just a little bit younger than me has never given them the time of day. Really? And I don't blame them, because all they've known is Counting Crows singing Big Yellow Taxi with Vanessa Carlton. Yeah. All they know is the newer, poppy, radio-friendly, happy music Counting Crows that are adult contemporary radio. I try to explain that the Counting Crows that made August and everything after are a completely better band than they have been during their conscious of music years. Right. Anytime we're all on a road trip, I will put this album across the wire. I'll put that on frequently, not just to try to turn a younger generation onto Crows, but also because if I'm on a road trip with friends, it's usually because it's either on a tour or we're just driving to a show for a day. And so it's also to give them exposure to somebody at the height of their game and showing them how much you can do with your own music once you've developed a mastery of your own songs. Yeah, that's fair. But it's still hard because kids today... Kids today, I'm telling you. Kids today don't know nothing. Nope. But it's not their fault if the radio wasn't picking better Counting Crow songs to play. End of rant. So let's talk this album. It's a double album. The first... That means there's two CDs. Two CDs. The first compact disc was recorded at Chelsea Studios in New York City, and it was for VH1 Storytellers. And the Storytellers was an acoustic set that bands would come on and do. This was filmed on August 12th, 1997, and the executive producer was Bill Flanagan. In the booklet that accompanied this double disc set, there's a whole write-up from Bill Flanagan about this tour and the County Crows and his interactions with them. This whole idea of doing storytellers on VH1, it was a new show and it was a new concept that 
they had while the County Crows were recording, recovering the satellites. Okay. And he tells a story in the booklet about how he went to the house that they had rented and set up in to record the album. He visited them and was able to eavesdrop on some music. And he pitched the idea to them and they were into it and they said that they would love to do it. But at that point in the process, there's still so many unknowns as far as when the album's going to be done, when they're going to be available to do it. And so he got the soft yes from them. As he writes it in the liner notes, that summer on August 12th in New York, County Crows kept their promise to VH1 storytellers. The idea of the show is that songwriters tell the stories behind their songs. Most of the storytelling has been deleted from this album. You might not want to listen to Adam talking about a song as many times as you'd listen to him singing it. Challenge accepted. I'm going to chime in and disagree because I have other storytellers albums and I have never gotten sick of hearing Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash talking about the songs every time they sing them. I don't think I would get tired of hearing Adam talk about them either. I don't think I'd get tired of hearing Adam talk about much of anything if I'm being completely honest with you. But it created a fantastic intimacy between the band and the small audience. County Crows set an unusual test for themselves that night. If they did not have an arrangement that was significantly different from the recorded version, they did not play the song. Now, the second disc was recorded at Hammerstein Ballroom in New York City for MTV's Live from the Ten Spot. That show was on November 6th, 1997, and the executive producer of that was Alex Coletti, who you might recognize from having produced Nirvana's MTV Unplugged. Nice. And for both shows, the audio was recorded by John Harris. This album was released in 1998 on July 13th on Geffen Records, which you may remember was also behind August and Everything After, Recovering the Satellites, as well as This Desert Life, Hard Candy, and Saturday Nights and Sunday Mornings. It was their first of what are now five live albums. They've almost released one live album for every original studio album they've put out. And I don't mind that at all. Neither do I. I haven't heard a bad one yet. No, no matter which one it is, they're always pulling in some classics, and that makes me happy. The cover art for the album features electrical poles with the Statue of Liberty in the background, as taken from a 1967 photograph by David Plowden, entitled Statue of Liberty from Cavern Point Road, Jersey City, New Jersey. So hey... Something good has come out of New Jersey. (laughs) And now Bruce Springsteen is going to beat me up. It's cute that you think Bruce Springsteen will ever even think of us or hear our names. Oh, he knows when people are making fun of New Jersey. (laughs) So let's jump in. The first disc. It is acoustic. It's very laid back and chill because, you know, that's the vibe of VH1 Storytellers. As we mentioned when we introduced the band for this recording, everyone kind of jumps around, plays multiple instruments, which Adam outlines in detail in the booklet. And he wrote, I don't have a whole lot to add here. I just thought that since everyone plays different instruments on the storyteller set, it might be helpful to know who plays what when. Round here is just me and David. He plays the guitar. I don't. Charlie comes out and plays piano on Have You Seen Me Lately. The rest of the band finally shows up for Angels of the Silences. Charlie switches to accordion and sings the main background vocals. Dan plays acoustic and sings some as well. 
Matt plays upright bass. Ben plays this cool acoustic drum kit he built. On Catapult, Charlie goes back to playing piano and Dan switches to banjo. Then we play Mr. Jones and they switch right back again. Charlie, Dave, Matt, and Ben sing the backing vocals. Dan finally gets to use his electric guitar on Rain King. He would like you to know he was very happy about this. He and Charlie sing and they're both happy about that too. We haven't mentioned Dave in a while, but he's been playing acoustic guitar for this whole time and he's never once complained about it. He's a good guy. He finally did get fed up with it though and he decided to play Dobro on Mercury. Charlie got pissed off next and said if Dave got to play Dobro, he wanted to play harmonica. So just to get them all to shut the hell up, I had to play the piano. That's why it sounds like crap. Nobody could agree on anything the rest of the night, so they just went back to playing electric instruments after that. I gave up on piano and went back to just singing, and after the show, we all punched out our tour manager, Tom. It was very satisfying, and we all felt much better, except for Tom. Poor Tom. (laughs) Uh, Poor Tom nothing. So while talking about people that nobody likes, I want to quote Greg Cott from Rolling Stone Interview. Um, back when this album came out in 98, he gave it two and a half stars. Okay. I want to counter that with the average user ranking from Rolling Stone, which has it at almost five. Has he since left Rolling Stone and started working at Pitchfork? I don't know. I'm going to read his whole paragraph here. Okay. On the acoustic disc, a mesh of stringed instruments, accordion, and brushes turns Angels of the Silence into a hymn-like jug band reverie, and the electric discs provides nine minutes worth of whisper-to-a-wall dynamics on round here. Otherwise, the most significant alterations are the tortured improvisations of singer Adam Duritz, and guess what? He's fed up with fame. Quote, we all want to be big, 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 big stars, but then we get second thoughts about that. He mutters on Mr. Jones which also includes a lyric from the birds, so you want to be a rock and roll star. On the two versions of Round Here, Duritz despairs, I have trouble acting normal, yet he has no trouble releasing an album in conjunction with the two music video channels most responsible for making him a pop icon. Consider that before you begin to feel sorry for poor Adam Duritz. I cannot think of a worse way to summarize these two albums and talk about the tortured artist side of Adam Duritz, which is obviously not for show. You hear it in each and every one of his albums. I take it back. Did he leave Rolling Stone to start Pitchfork? (laughs) He now has a radio show and podcast for people who love music called Sound Opinions and is a former music critic at the Chicago Tribune. Are you sure it's for people who love music and not people who hate themselves? That's kind of how I'm feeling. So, song one, round here. Yeah. Before we even get to that, I just want to point out how the album adorably starts with whoever's introducing the band saying, Please welcome uh, my favorite band, Counting Crows. He must just kick himself every time he hears him say, um, but it's adorable. It's so endearing to the album. Adam Duritz said in 1999 that we wrote the song in 89. We were all in bands and had crappy jobs. We would wash dishes, work in record stores, and wash windows by day so we could be in a rock and roll band at night. And it was after college and our friends are getting on with their lives. And there comes a point in life of every rock and roll band that you have to sort of decide, am I going to do this with my life or am I going to go get one of those other jobs? Because I can't deal with washing dishes anymore and I can't dig more holes and I can't wash another window. And there's those that go and there's those that stay 
and you walk out on the edge of the world and you balance yourself there for a while and you try to figure out just which one you're going to be. And a lot of our friends are doing other things right now. And we're standing right here up on the stage. And I think that kind of summarizes... Um, you can hear in these versions, Adam struggling with that. Like on the one hand, they're big stars. They got everything they wanted, but is this what they actually wanted? Right. Mm -hmm. So as he mentions at the beginning of the quote, we were all in bands. And in addition to being in Counting Crows together, this song I only realized a couple of years ago is actually a cover song. This is one that he had written and recorded with the Himalayans. I would highly recommend looking up the Himalayans versions. You can find it on YouTube. It's very similar. The melody's there. All the lyrics are there. But the bass, the bass hits a lot. Not necessarily harder, but it grooves a lot more. We don't have to go to our sponsor for this one. Adam Duritz has a very clear explanation of the song. He says, The first way Counting Crows ever sounded, it was me and Dave in bars and coffee houses playing open mics doing this song this way. The song begins with a guy walking out of the front door of his house and leaving behind this woman. But the more he begins to leave people behind in his life, the more he feels he's leaving himself behind as well. The less and less substantial he feels, even as he disappears from the lives of other people, he's disappearing more and more from his own life. The chorus is he sort of keeps screaming out these idioms, things that you're told when you're a kid that you do these things, that when you're grown up, it'll all add up to something. You'll have a job. You'll have a life. I think for me and the character of the song, they don't add up to anything. It's just a bunch of crap. The song is done in an acoustic way. It sounds a lot like the album, but he does make a few changes to the lyrics. This song changes more than just about any other song they do. He changes the lyrics and instead of saying she's sick and tired of life, she must be tired of something. He says she's sick and tired of life. Well, everyone's tired of something around here. And then he pulls in some other song lyrics where he says, would you catch me if I'm fallen? Would you kiss me if I was leaving? Would you hold me because I'm lonely without you? And that just guts. That tells where Adam is. And his voice is so emotive. He drags you in. You feel what he's feeling. Mm -hmm. And I love it. Then we're off to song number two. Have you seen me lately? I have not. But in reference to this song, it's from Recovering the Satellites. Kind of interesting. I was watching the Hulu show The Bear, mm -hmm. and on season one, episode two, Have You Seen Me Lately is played. Hmm. Nice. LA Weekly had an article where they were referencing the Have You Seen Me Lately lyrics, and it says, quote, These days I feel like I'm fading away, like sometimes when I hear myself on the radio. Being too famous may be an esoteric problem, but the album's themes of isolation and alienation still resonate for anyone who's gone through a major life change. It's that relatability. It's the fact that we can find ourselves in the songs that Adam's writing about himself mm -hmm. that has kept this as one of my favorite bands for all these years. Certainly. The version of this song particularly is much more pensive and reflective sounding. It's slower. It is acoustic compared to the, the strong electric feel in Recovering the Satellites. And in my opinion, the sound of this aligns much more with the lyrics than the original version did. I really like that opening quote that you referenced there. It's about, you know, the alienation from any major life change, regardless of better or worse or extreme success. I guess it's always hard to know for sure where other people stand or what they're going through, because sometimes it's hard enough to understand and know where you are and what you're going through yourself. So, yeah. So, yeah, Adam does a great job on this, like many of his songs of just kind of giving it universal blanket applicability and relatability. 
Angels in Silence is track three. It's also one that was originally recorded on Recovering the Satellites. And this is one of their more rocky rock songs that they have in their catalog. And so it is incredibly different sounding. It's less angsty and more calm. And it has beautiful harmonies. And all of these sound like they should be good things. But again, just with the nature of how much it rocks on the album, it's not that they're bad things. It's just, again, incredibly different. Mm-hmm. Adam talking about Angels of the Silences. I write quite a few songs where the sort of issue is faith, having faith, keeping faith. And this song in particular is about the difficulty in having faith in things and finding things to have faith in, in yourself, in God. Faith is a weird thing. It, in a sense, is all about waiting. It's not actually about getting anything you know. Faith is about the wait, because once you get something, there is no more need. So a lot of faith is just the willingness to sort of throw yourself on a fence and hang in there for a while. That's a very difficult and bitter thing, you know? It's not just about finding things to believe in. It's about wanting to be able to believe in anything, too. It's about all the voices that get inside your head and whisper to you to do it or not do it as well. I like that quote. I like that there's so much stuff out there for us to hear Adam telling us why he's writing what he wrote. Right. I like both versions. As you said, it does sound a lot different. There's a lot less 90s angst in it in this version. Right. And they're almost so different that I listen to them as two different songs, but I love them both equally. Yeah, I think the hardest part about choosing this to do an episode with is trying to come up with just three at the end. And not have the same two songs. We'll get into that more when the time comes, I'm sure. We don't need to catapult our listeners ahead in the timeline. Oh, dude, that's our first proper segue. You're welcome. I'm so proud of you, Mark. I didn't even write in segues, and you've still pulled one out. Catapult, also from Recovering the Satellite. Song number four. And this song, I think, was a little more difficult for Adam Duritz. It was written as the fame of the Counting Crows was on its way up. Mm -hmm. And shortly after Kurt Cobain's death, Adam said, We heard that Cobain had shot himself, and it really scared the hell out of me because I thought, these things in my life are getting so out of control. These events and the feelings that were surrounding it were the basis for Catapult. The version of the song On Recovering Satellites has a lot more of an electric feel. Mm -hmm. They do a good job of substituting the acoustic instruments for the instruments in the studio version. And it sounds really nice, but this one does feel more drawn out. I like that context because I'd never heard that quote before. But just being able to put where they were at and where Adam was at and where everything was at in relation to Cobain. And just as Adam is starting to become successful and to have big name success, seeing the biggest rock star on the planet take his own life under the pressure. And there were a lot more factors to that. But just as a base surface level looking at, is that going to be my future? Mm -hmm. I'm sure that staring Adam right in the face was terrifying. In a very real sense, it's literally having to face your own mortality, and nobody loves doing that. None of us do. No. I don't care if you're Tom, Tom's mom, or Mr. Jones. Or Mr. Jones. Who is Mr. Jones, Mark? Mr. Jones was a gentleman named Marty Jones, who happened to be the bass player in the Himalayans. Oh. And the song itself is based loosely on real events. This was the first Counting Crows single ever released, coming out originally on my mom's birthday, December 1st, 1993. 
it reached number five on the Billboard Hot 100. When I saw them at the Greek Theater in Berkeley, they told the story of they were packing up their van to go on tour and Mr. Jones came on the radio and it was a surprise to them and they all kind of stopped packing and just turned the radio up and danced around the front yard and as Adam tells the story he says Primus, who also lived near them, then came over and beat them up. (laughs) So this song peaked at number 5 on Billboard Hot 100 Airplay and came in at number 1 in Canada and 7 in France. American Songwriter has a ranking of the top 10 Counting Crows songs, and Mr. Jones ranks number four. I'm not going to reference that list anymore because it's a crap list that puts both Big Yellow Taxi and Suddenly in Love in the top 10, but does not include Anna Begins. Yeah, that sounds like a terrible list. It is a terrible list. And that's from American Songwriter and not Pitchfork? It's from American Songwriter and not Pitchfork. I think it's safe to assume Pitchfork will never sponsor this podcast. That's surprising because I generally respect American Songwriter, although they have covered Charles Ellsworth in the past. (laughs) Nice. So Adam Duritz on VH1 Storytellers says that this was really a song about his friend Marty and him, and they went out to watch his dad play. His dad was a flamenco guitar player who lived in Spain. Marty's dad. What'd I say? I'm just clarifying that it's Marty's dad and not Adam's dad. Oh, yeah. He was in San Francisco in the mission playing with his old flamenco troupe. And after the gig, they all went to a bar called New Amsterdam in San Francisco on Columbus. Hmm. Yeah. Sounds fun. They were drunk at the bar and they saw Kenny Dale Johnson, the longtime drummer for the musician Chris Isaac, sitting with three women. And quote, it just seemed like, you know, we couldn't even manage to talk to girls. We were just thinking if we were rock stars, it'd be easier. So I went home and wrote that song. I think things got easier for Adam Duritz with the ladies. For those of you who lived through the 90s, you may know two of the biggest names in Hollywood were from Friends, Courtney Cox and Jennifer Aniston. And Adam Duritz had a relationship with both of them, among many other celebrities. So things did get easier when he became a rock star. Yes. The song opens up with a pensive bird song. So you want to be a rock and roll star? And he says, so you want to be a rock and roll star? Well, listen now to what I say. Just get an electric guitar and take some time. Learn how to play. That was always my problem. The learning how to play? Like Bart Simpson, when he gets a guitar, I wasn't immediately good. So I never had the patience to practice, practice, practice. You kind of disarmed down pretty well. (laughs) I mean, I got good enough where I've written one song. He cut out the So Come Dance, The Silence, Down Through the Morning, Sha La La, La 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 La, Yeah, Uh Uh-huh, Yeah, when he was performing here. Mm -hmm. He made an interesting change in the original version when he's singing about the girl. He says that she's smiling in the bright lights. Here he says, standing in this bright light. A couple other quick changes he made. In the original song, he says, when everybody loves you, you can never be lonely. But apparently now with his fame, he has different feelings. And he says, when everybody loves you, you should never be lonely. Instead of the original version where he said, I felt so symbolic yesterday, he says, I just get confused every day. This whole next section, he sings a little differently. He says, yeah, I want to be a lion. I know, I know. Everybody wants to pass as cats. We all want to be big, 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 big stars. Yeah, but we get second thoughts about that. So believe in me, man, I don't believe in anything. And I don't want to be someone to believe. You should not believe in me. And the most poignant line, I think, from any of his songs here is, well, man, when everybody loves you, sometimes that's just about as effed up as you can be. And then he goes on to, can't you hear me? Because I'm screaming. But I did not go outside yesterday. 
oh, don't wake me because I was dreaming and I might just stay inside again today because Mr. Jones and me, we don't see each other much anymore. Even that last line is kind of poignant because, you know, he wrote the song about his friend from his former band and he's got a new band and he's got a new band that's successful enough that at this point they had been touring nonstop. Yeah. And so everybody in his life who wasn't in the band, he probably hardly had seen since that initial rise to fame. So, sure, that guy at Rolling Pitchfork wanted to give Adam no sympathy for making it big, but just because you want to be an artist doesn't mean you're signing up to have your life upended entirely forever. Right. And so, those are a lot of the emotions that are coming through here in the slight variations to the songs that he's making. And I do feel sorry for Adam, who we, who we know is the Rain King. <laughs> Next up, we have song six, Rain King, which was from August and Everything After originally. Mm -hmm. It was their fourth single. He sings this with the same lyrics as the album, There Are No Differences. It's just slowed down. And I can honestly say for this whole album, this is the first song that I like less than I do the studio album. Really? Why is that? I don't know. I just don't dig the new tone or the new tempo, how slowed down it is. I don't like the new arrangement. Okay. That's interesting. I did find a quote about this song that's cited all over the interwebs as being from Adam. Okay. But it's always cited back to Wikipedia. So when I went back to Wikipedia to see where it was originally cited from, it says, need citation. But it sounds plausible. So I'm going to put it here and you can decide for yourself. It says, I read this book in college when I was at Berkeley called Henderson, The Rain King. And the main character in the book was this big open wound of a person, Eugene Henderson. He just sort of bled all over everyone around him. For better or worse, full of joy, full of sorrow, he just made a mess of everything. And when I wrote the song years later, it didn't really have anything to do with the book, except the book had kind of become a totem for how I felt about creativity and writing. That it was just this thing where you just took everything inside of you and you just sort of sprayed it out all over everything and not to worry too much about it. You try and craft it, but not to be so self-conscious about it in any case, because it's full of all the doubts and the fears and about how I felt about my life at the time. I think it is sort of a religious song about the sort of undefinable thing inside of you or out there somewhere that makes you write, makes you create, makes you do any kind of art form, makes you the ranking sort of. Hmm. I read that, and then I went back and listened to the song. I liked Rain King from the get-go, but Adam's explanation made it a little more interesting. Yeah. Next up, we're going to cover Mercury. And I don't know if you agree with this. When I was listening to Mercury, which was from Recovering the Satellites, mm -hmm. again, every time they do something from Recovering the Satellites, they have to change it up because they're going from this strong electric to this acoustic vibe. But on the album and here, Mercury has this like country slash bio vibe more so than any other stuff that they do with the way they play the harmonica and the effects they put on the guitar. And somehow they make this still sound more like the album than most songs on this disc. Yeah, I don't know if I would necessarily say it's country, but it's definitely not rock. It's Do you not like the Bayou comparison? That might be fairly apt. Can't you just see the two of us driving through the swamps on an airboat blaring this? I mean, just to be technical, I would go less country and more Americana. So I think our happy meeting place in the middle is Bayou. Okay. I don't think it's necessarily twangy enough to be country, but I mean, it's definitely not going for a rock, which is fine because them doing something new and trying something kind of experimental for them, I never disliked. No. 
but this was never my favorite song from that album. You know, if I'm listening to the whole album, I won't hit the skip button, but I also won't start listening to this song or put it on any of my playlists. Yes. Ghost Train, on the other hand, is a song I've always loved. Mm -hmm. I actually like all of their songs that involve ghosts. Song eight on this is their song Ghost Train, which is from August and Everything After. It is. I don't have a lot to say about this because it's not terribly different. I think it's easier to notice the differences in the recovering songs rather than the songs from August. Absolutely. It does feel like it has more intensity, Mm -hmm. but the lyrics are the same. Which leads us into song nine, which is one of my favorite Counting Crows songs, Anna Begins. And this song is long. It is 13 minutes and 55 seconds. And I remember when I bought the album, I listened to all 13 minutes and 55 seconds to see if there was something coming up. I'm like, okay, there has to be something hidden here. There has to be something else they're going to do. But there's not. There's just a lot of dead air and silence. Or is there? There definitely is. There's another song on the album next. So how much of the 1355 is the actual Anna Begins performance? It's five minutes and 31 seconds. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Adam did an interview back in 2013 with songfacts.com about this song. He was asked specifically about Anna Begins. Mm -hmm. And he said, the proper names matter to me, so I use them. I think that comes across to other people, even if it's not the name they're thinking of. People ask me questions all the time, like, who's Anna from Anna Begins? Well, she's Anna. You don't know her. She's in Australia, but she's every girl you ever felt that way about, too. I use proper names because they ring for me. They're just people's names. I may change the name a little bit sometimes. I changed Amelia to Amy for Amy Hit the Atmosphere, Betsy to Elizabeth for Goodnight Elizabeth, because it worked better for that song. But mostly I just use their name because they're people. And the story goes that this was about a girl that Adam met in Greece who's from Australia. They had a fling. Adam thought it was a lot more serious than she did, and she broke his heart. Oh, I know. Poor Adam. So my brother John, who I mentioned got me into Counting Crows originally, his firstborn child was a girl who they named Anna. After the song? It's a safe bet, seeing as he named his firstborn son William. So I have always called him Billy, because I know he named him after Billy Corgan. (laughs) But Anna... Yeah, I'm 99.9% certain it's because of the song. I don't know where they got her middle name, which is May, but they didn't realize when they named her that they named her Anime. <laughs> I think they named her while listening to NSYNC. And they're like, what's her middle name going to be? And Justin just comes out, it's going to be May. I sure hope not. The the only thing that uh, Adam changed in this was on the line when he says, I'm not worried because I've done this sort of thing before. But then I start to think about the consequence that I don't get no sleep in a quiet room. He changed to, I just do the same things over and over and over again. But then I start to think about the consequences because I don't get no sleep. Man, I never sleep. And then, like I said, there's like seven minutes of silence before they come out and do the song Chelsea. I find it a sad way to end the show. It has horns, right? Yep. So there's a horn section on it, if you're into that. And yeah, like you said, it's kind of a bummer. So it's on brand. (laughs) Will you promise that it's something out if I tell you a joke right now? Yes. Might you say this is their horniest song? Boo. (laughs) And that wraps up disc one. And from there, we're going to MTV's Live from the Ten Spot. Although it's a 
simple jump for us. For them, it was four months and a whole lot of tour dates later. Going back to Bill Flanagan from the notes, even though he worked for VH1 and Storytellers, he still did a lovely little write-up that included this performance for MTV. He says, On November 6th, the band finished their North American tour with a show at Manhattan's Hammerstein Ballroom that was broadcast on MTV's Live from the Tenth Spot. It was an end-of-the-tour blowout for a tightly-packed mob of happy fans. Adam said... He was not nervous about playing a concert live on national TV. I don't mind pressure situations, he said. It makes it wild. I wanted it to be a really brutal electric gig, and it turned out to be that. Huh. And, yeah, and since this is them being electric and blowing out of the tour, they start with one of their most electric rock songs at the time. As we discussed previously, that is Recovering the Satellites, the title track from the album Recovering the Satellites. It started on a really high note. It did. It sounded just like the studio album. That, and you can just tell that they're they're having fun with it. So much of the first disc is so good because it's so emotional, and there's so much there that was so personal. Yep. So to have this as the contrast where it's just them kind of letting loose and having fun as a band. Yep. That comes through equally as well as any other emotion that Adam puts into any of the other songs and that is equally fun to listen to absolutely and that energy carries over greatly into the second track angels of the silences this is my favorite version of the song it slaps it bops it taps it baps and both listeners that we had just stopped right then Good. Yeah, there's not as much to add here because it does stay pretty true to the original. Rain King, we get a little different version. Adam plays a little bit more with the lyrics. He extends a line. Okay. Where he says, oh, it seems night endlessly begins and ends. He adds the begins and ends multiple times. And then he added a whole section where he does this talk sing where he's kind of storytelling. Mm -hmm. He says, so shy, shy, look what I found. Your eyes have taken me out of bounds. Shy, shy, look what I found. I'm so shy, shy, but look what I found. Your eyes take me out of bounds. Shy, shy, but look what I found. And then he goes on and he says, she said, when I think of heaven, and he repeats that three times and then says it again. She said, when I think of heaven, I think of you. How come you don't think of me too? And then he goes right back to the original lyrics. And it's just a cool little interlude into the song. Yeah, still finding playful ways to mix it up and bring something new to it for both the audience and for himself. And then we move on to Sullivan Street, which it's always been kind of a mess song for me. This is from August and everything after. It's just been kind of a song that's there. I like it's a beautiful song. It is. I'm not super crazy about this version of it. I'm not either. It is a beautiful song and it's one I always enjoy, but I never seek out or when I'm thinking Counting Crows, oh, I'm going to go listen to Sullivan Street right now. But Adam gave a great explanation. He said, my last girlfriend for the first month and a half that we were going out, her mother was living with her and her mother's very Catholic. We couldn't spend the night together. So I was constantly making these drives in the middle of the night. It was very surreal, four in the morning, falling asleep. I really believed in the relationship. But when I was writing the song, the lyrics came out. Pretty soon, I won't come around. It wasn't that I wanted. I I didn't want it to end. But there it was. It's about the inevitability of leaving. 
It's one that I've heard him talk about in other places and tell the story. And it's not just that she couldn't spend the night, but he'd been living in Berkeley and she lived in San Francisco. And so there's... Oh, so he was crossing the bridge at four in the morning? Yeah, a whole bridge between them. Oh, jeez. And maybe that's why I've always enjoyed the song is because I can relate to driving the Bay Area in the middle of the night when I have been going home from girlfriend's houses or just because of insomnia. Making making that trip into the city and back every night just to take her home. That in itself, I can see that starting to get taxing. Well, that traffic on the bridge, no matter what time you go, is insane. The longest that it's ever taken me to cross the Bay Bridge was at 1.30 in the morning one night because they I were believe it. doing construction, so they had everything closed down to one lane, and even that lane was stop and go because of the construction. And it took me like two hours to get across the Bay Bridge in the middle of the night. The last time I crossed the Bay Bridge, I was in a van full of people and we had just gone to Tahoe and we're coming back. And a couple cars ahead of us, this 18-wheeler had jackknifed and tipped over and we were able to get around it. But shortly after we got by, we saw them shut the entire bridge down and it went down for hours. I don't like dealing with those bridges, man. So yeah, it's not just that he was driving here home a couple blocks, but it was a serious trek into the city and back yeah and so as insensitive as you know just the surface telling the story of pretty soon i'm going to stop coming around because i'm sick of having to drive you home but there's the conflict with his delivery and the emotion behind the way that he says it it's more of him saying it so he can come to terms with the reality of it yeah because it's wearing him down it is And I like that he didn't know he needed to end it or that the relationship was ending until he wrote it. Mm -hmm. That just speaks a lot to what writing is to Adam. Yeah. Well, that and how much the whole situation was wearing him out. It's sad. Next up, On Across a Wire, Song 5, Children in Bloom from Recovering the Satellites. As I was researching, I love people's explanations of stuff. Shivers? back in 2007, commented on this and said, I guess this song's just about growing up and losing the innocence of childhood. Counting Crows seem to write a lot of songs about this. It's beautiful, just like nostalgia always is. I just love the way Duritz makes things so personal, looking back at specific things in his childhood. Things like the whole leave my sister alone because she didn't deserve this. I guess it's talking about how he grew up with siblings and he's just telling time to leave her alone because she doesn't deserve to lose that innocence. Nicole is a reference to a friend who hasn't seen in a while, who still remembers as a child, but she's grown up, got married, quote, the altar is empty, and suddenly he kind of realizes his childhood is gone. It's pretty sad stuff. Nicole is his sister. All these people talk about who Nicole is. It's very easy to find. It took like two seconds to figure out Nicole is Adam Durr's sister, y'all. But it is. It's about loss of innocence, looking back on time, things changing. Yeah. Which Mark and I both recently entered our 40s and are about to both be the answer to the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. So I find myself doing this and being more pensive and reflective than I had been before. I gotta say, I'm surprised you were able to find such a lucid and reasonable explanation for a song from your sponsor. Right? That's why it's a surprise, because usually we pull the most ridiculous things from songmeaning.com. As you said, Mark, the answer to this is no. We have not seen each other lately, but we fortunately have this podcast and um, talk about stupid stuff regularly to stay in touch. This song, song six on Across the Wire Disc 2, sounds much more like the album version. Mm-hmm. So it's good. It's solid. And Adam did add the same lyrics that he did for the VH1 show. So that happened again. Okay. I love what happened next. What happened next? It's Raining in Baltimore, song seven, which was from August and everything after. 
keep in mind, we've been kind of rocking, mm -hmm. had a lot of instruments, it's been loud, there have been some cacophonous moments. Things slow down here, and it opens up with just a piano and Adam Duritz. And Adam Duritz sings Raining in Baltimore, that he explains was written about feeling lost. He was born in Baltimore, Maryland, and then his family moved away when he was three years old. He would visit his grandmother in Baltimore over several summers as a kid. His family moved so often that he wasn't from any specific place. He says, when I'm 50 miles east of Baltimore, it's like 50 miles east of where I come from, which is blank to me. It's a way of being lost. Somehow, in all these years of traveling around the world, I've only managed to be 50 miles east of the place I was born, and I don't know what it means to be there. In his AMA, though, he got a little bit more concrete about the song, and it was a really cool explanation. He said he had a friend, Bonnie Simmons, who was close friends with Bonnie Raitt, and she used to go through all the cassette tapes that fans sent Bonnie Raitt and find songs for Bonnie on those thousands of tapes. And Adam says, when I was younger, I used to help her with that. Bonnie Raitt was one of the first professional musicians I met, and she was very kind to me. I actually wrote Raining in Baltimore to give to Bonnie Raitt. Hmm. I never heard that before. It's interesting. Yeah, it is. It's something that, like I said, I just found by reading through his AMA. Cool. I have a lot of notes about Round Here for this section because I tried to break them up because there's just so much information about Round Here. Mm -hmm. In this one, he does do one of my favorite changes for Round Here when he says she'd like to meet a boy who looks just like Elvis as an aside. And he said, it's not me. Mm -hmm. The whole song feels more conversational, like he's talking with the audience. Certainly. There's a section where he adds, she says, it's only in my head. She says, shut up. I know. This is only in my head. She said, did you think that you were dreaming? I said, no. She said, did you think that you were dreaming? I said, no. She said, did you think that you were dreaming? And I said, sometimes I don't know because I was out on the radio and he brings in Raining in Baltimore, which was something they did a lot. They would put Raining in Baltimore or part of it in the middle of round here. And then Adam shushes the audience several times and the piano just starts to play softly and he goes back to round here, but this time it's really subdued. And he says, there's a girl in the parking lot. She says, can't you see me? Can't you see me? Can't you see that my walls are tumbling down? Can't you see my walls are crumbling down? Can't you see my sun stop spinning round? Can't you see the sky turn black and brown? Can't you see that moon go flashing round? And can't you see me? Can't you see me? Can't you see me? No. And I'll say this is one of my favorite live performances I have ever heard from anybody. I love it. It's not a medley. Nope. It's still all just round here. But he's working in so much material. Like you said, he's working in Raining in Baltimore. And he's also working in pieces of Have You Seen Me Lately. And it's songs that at this point they've already played, so there should still be fresh in the audience's mind. Yep. I'm Not Sleeping. I have nothing to add to I'm Not Sleeping here. It's the same song from the album. Yeah, that's fair. I don't think that they do too much to mix it up on this one, nope. but that's fine. He emotes plenty on the album, so matching that yep. live, I won't fault him for. No. But what he does do well is follows that up with track 10, which is A Murder of One yep. from August and Everything After. And they do an incredible version of the song here. Yep. And everybody's just killing it. 
my note I had, I just put so much energy followed by an exclamation point. And there's a cool quote from Adam where he says, I can remember being eight years old and having infinite possibilities, but life ends up being so much less than we thought it would be when we were kids with relationships that are so empty and stupid and brutal. If you don't find a way to break the chain and change in some way, then you wind up as the rhyme goes, a murder of one for sorrow. I love the energy he brings when he just tells everybody in the audience to just get the hell up. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I mean, they're they're feeling it. And he warns them a couple of times, you know, to get up. And apparently they didn't get up enough. So he has to use a little stronger wording on them. Yep. Then we're going to slow things down a bit. Yep. A Long December, track 11. On disc two of The Counting Crows Across a Wire, A Long December is taken from their album Recovering the Satellites. And it's... A piano-driven track, like most of the rest of this. It's a somber, serious song, but you've got the full band, and the full band brings a lot to it. I know this is one where they do it a lot. They'll just make it Adam the piano to be dramatic and moving, but here he is backed by the full band. I'm not really sure what else to say about the song itself. It's one of their more popular ones, so if you don't know it, congratulations on waking up from your coma. This ends the main bulk of the songs that comprise disc two. Yep. And at the end of the song, Adam, he thanks the opener from the show, Dog's Eye View. And he goes on to encourage everybody on their way out to check out booths that are set up and at the very least pick up a pamphlet. And there are different causes that he names that he thinks are worth supporting. And what's interesting about this, looking at that note with regards to the VH1 storytellers, they cut the stories off of that disc, but yet they decided to keep this bit of dialogue on. And I think that says something about him as a person, about them as a band, that they were proactive with using their fame responsibly. It's nice to see celebrities using their fame to make the world a better place. And then we have Walkaways, which... This one I wish was an actual developed song. I wish this was more than just a minute and a half. That's the big criticism of Walkaways across the board. People like it, but it's just as you're getting into it, it's done. It feels very much like it's just the beginning of what should be a really good song. Yep. And then it's over. And then we're done. And then we're sad again. Although maybe not again, because if they're doing their jobs, then we've been sad this whole time. Yeah. I love Counting Crows. I love this album. I can put it on and just listen to it from front to back, beginning to end, and have no qualms. And that's not the way it is with a ton of other albums out there. Yeah. There's plenty of other bands who have put out live albums that I enjoyed, but I don't think anyone else has put one out where I will listen to the live album as much as I'll listen to the studio records. Right. And I will listen to this as much as I listen to August and Everything After, as much as I listen to Recovering the Satellites. The last bit of notes from the liner book says, I don't know if there's any logic to a band with only two albums putting out a double concert CD, but it's good to hear a live album from a young group at the peak of their powers. It's good to hear musicians in the process of discovering what they can do together and finding new ways through their songs. When you listen to the music, it makes all the sense in the world. 
and I really like that as the wrap-up because, yeah, there's no justifiable reason to do this as a release other than the fact that it's amazing and the fans appreciate it. Yep. And that should be all the reason anyone ever needs to do what they do. Yeah. We talked earlier about how coming up with a top three for this was difficult. It was, because I'm only going to let myself use one song one time, because mm-hmm. I don't want to cheat. Although I am cheating in another way. I have a tie for number two. <laughs> you always have ties. I know, I know. Okay, what you got? Lay it on us. Number three from Disc 2, Angels of the Silences. Okay. A tie for number two, Disc 2, A Murder of One. Mm-hmm. And Disc 1, Anna Begins. And my number one is Disc 2's Round Here. Okay. What you got? Number three is Mr. Jones, which if you're paying attention, there was only one version. It's on disc one. Number two, because I can be decisive, is simply and only a murder of one (laughs) from disc two. Okay. And for the number one spot, as amazing as the disc two performance is and how much it foreshadows what becomes the pinnacle of Counting Crows live for decades... The sparse loneliness of just Adam and Dave is truer, in my opinion, to the melancholy heartache at the center of the nature of Round Here. And so I have to go with the first disc version of Round Here for number one. All right. The second disc, they give an amazing performance and do a great job proving that they're a live band. But the first disc speaks more to my poor dead emo heart. <laughs> That's fair. There's a line by No Motive in their song, The Waiting Hurt, that says, Counting Crows is playing round here, and I'm not having fun, because you're not here with me. (laughs) In a way, I love it because it's ridiculous and over the top, but also perfectly encapsules the vibe of the song somehow. Yeah. You would have been hard-pressed to build the top three list that I wouldn't also like and be able to endorse. This is one where there's no real wrong answers. My real question for you... What song did they leave out that you would have liked to have heard them play? Oh, um, I wish they would have done The Ghost in You. Okay. And of course, Einstein on the Beach. Einstein totally would have fit on disc two wonderfully. Ghost in You is a cover of the Psychedelic Furs, which it would have been a cover, but I don't think that should disqualify it. Okay. How about you? I always feel like another Horse Dreamer's Blues is underrated. Okay. I would like to hear more of that live, where Adam does a lot of vocalizations. The Yeah. I think he could have done an interesting version with that in either set. Tell us what songs you would have liked to have heard them play live on these albums. Leave us a comment. Reach out to us on social. Tell us what you think of the song, the podcast. We are at a point now where we're asking for your help. If you listen to this and you enjoyed it at all, please take just a moment and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Music, wherever you get your podcast. Every positive review helps us reach more people and build a bigger community. Until next time. This has been Once Every Two Weeks. We'll see you again in about two weeks. I guess. Once 
Once Every Two Weeks is a production brought to you by the Geek Lounge and Burrow Baracho Records. Mm-hmm.